This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The school has canceled the planned dorm renovation, cut its budget, and announced layoffs, unfortunately not of the president. If things keep moving in this direction, Evergreen will close. For once, a happy ending. Brown University is censoring a scientific study by one of its own researchers because political activists don't like it. In a paper published earlier this month, a tenured Brown professor called Lisa Littman found that teenagers who say they want to switch genders are often influenced, not surprisingly, by friends and social media, like all young people are. Hello, this is Benjamin Boyce, and welcome to my channel station. Now, as you might know, I've been doing a series on gender, sexuality, and transition for several months now, actually more than a year. And over that time, I've spoken with a wide array of very interesting people, at least to me. They're very, very interesting. But one person in this discussion had been evading me. And then one day, not too long ago, I was reading an advanced copy of Abigail Schreier's Irreversible Damage, which premieres, I don't know what books do, which comes out on June 30th, 2020, but you can pre-order it now. It's very well done. And in this book was a chapter devoted to the woman who had been eluding me, Lisa Littman. And in that chapter, Abigail Schreier writes about how Lisa Littman hates giving interviews. And I thought that was a perfect thing to tease Lisa Littman about. So I texted her up and I teased her about that. And then I had an idea. She said, yeah, I know, I know. I really don't like giving interviews. And I understand that. I totally understand that. But then I had an idea. Why don't I invite Sasha Ayad and Lisa Littman to have a conversation with me about this topic? What topic, you might ask? Well, this is the reason why Lisa Littman is so important in the broader discourse. What she saw some years ago was a rapid increase in young women identifying as trans or showing up to different gender clinics and talking about how they experienced gender dysphoria. And up until that point, the research on gender dysphoria was mostly concerned with males. And also there was another form of gender dysphoria that wasn't well covered that Lisa Littman gave the title Rapid Onset Gender Dysphoria to, or ROGD, which basically goes to say that the teen doesn't experience or doesn't remember experiencing gender dysphoria in their early years. It just kind of suddenly happens, and it happens in friendship groups, and it happens kind of in relationship to the internet subculture of gender ideology. On top of that research, so so Lisa Lippman saw that phenomena, wanted to research it, and when her research came to light, she received a massive amount of pushback on it, something that was incongruent with anything she had experienced before. And why is that the case? Why is activism restraining the questions that researchers are allowed to ask? Well, that is something we get into. We also get into Lisa Littman's research, and we compare that with Sasha Ayad's practice of counseling teens that are struggling with their gender. So, with much pleasure and without further ado, here's Sasha, Lisa Littman, and myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, How's it going, Benjamin? Benjamin? <laughs> Good. Um, I, I, uh, can you see my fuzzy dead cat? Yeah. yeah. Okay, I don't want <laughs> that on the video. All right, how's that? 
my dog okay. may come and join us. How large is the dog? Is it going to fit in the frame? Uh, if I lift her up, she's uh, she is 15 pounds. She's supposed to be probably 13. So we got, you know, we were instructed to cut back on her snacks. <laughs> so I think she looks she looks perfect to me. Um <laughs> But she's not jumping as well. So, um, <laughs> but she's, she's she's pretty small. She's she's small. So I would have to I'd have to lift her up to say hello. Well, if she wants to join us, that it's, she's more than welcome. Yes, I think okay. so too. I have to say, I do love pets making appearances on these work calls I and know. like whatever. I think that's it's so it's so nice. Yeah, I love it too. It's it's so exciting. Sasha, do you have a like a cockatoo or something exotic? Do you have a pet? No, no? I have you a have cat. A cat. <laughs> okay, I've never seen the cat come in frame. He's oh, he's very Marciano has a bird. Yes, I've heard her bird before. I think during her podcasts and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty great. I wish I had a yeah. bird, but I don't. Yeah, just so a you cat. have a cat. Yeah. So sometimes he's like just flopped over behind me, sitting down, but he doesn't jump in front of my computer unless he's demanding I feed him. So right now it's, I don't think that's going to be an issue, but you never know. Cats get hungry and never demanding. <laughs> Mine's going to swoop in at any moment. Oh, she I love it. Done her, done, done her rounds yet. So, okay. <laughs> she comes in. So, um, should we, um, start to talk about an issue or two? Sure. Yeah. Uh, this one issue that you're both involved in and that I've been kind of uh, talking my way through or researching my way through is what Lisa Lippman called ROGD or rapid onset gender dysphoria. You are the originator of that um, name, right? Yes. Yes. And that was uh, in 2016, I believe, that you put out your – or was it 2018 that you put out that? Uh, well, so let's see. I – launched the study. So we started recruiting in 2016. So probably early 2016 or late 2015 is when I submitted it to the IRB. And then in summer of 2016 is when that term was used in the recruitment information that, that was posted on websites. Um, and then I guess the first time it was more publicly seen was when the first abstract of interim results was published. And that was March of 2017. And then the paper came out in 2018. So, yeah, I mean, I was searching for a, a term to use because I was trying to describe an entity or a scenario. And as I was writing about it, it was just, I felt like I needed something that was shorter than saying, you know, that thing that happens when a teenager doesn't have a history of gender dysphoria, but then, you know, starts to develop, you know, so, so yeah, so I chose rapid onset gender dysphoria because it seemed very um, descriptive and neutral. Mm -hmm. And what led you up to, do you want to walk us through like what uh, sparked your interest in, in studying yeah, this phenomenon? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, this was not my primary area of research. So um, if you want to go way back, so I'm trained as an OBGYN um, and then I was in private practice for several years. And then eventually I switched over to research in public health. Um, so my, the way that I see things are very public health like. Um, 
And so I was just observing in my community that one after the next teenager was announcing a transgender identification, you know, often on social media. Um, and it was one after the next. And I found this surprising given what I knew about what the expected prevalence of this was. And I found it surprising that, you know, these kids who were making announcements were from the same friend group. So that was the initial thing that sparked my interest in, in sort of a, huh, that's interesting. Um, so from there, I started, you know, I went to do a little bit of background research on my own. I um, looked through the literature about gender dysphoria and gender dysphoria in children and adolescents and adults. And I did not say, see any theories about, you know, or any sort of documentation of these clusters of friendship groups. Um, so I thought, okay, this is unusual. And then I went and I looked online and um, I saw there were, couple, there were some narratives of parents writing about their kids who didn't have um, any symptoms of gender dysphoria as a kid. And then, you know, many of them went through puberty. And then on the other side, they, you know, belonged to these friend groups where they talked a lot about this all the time. And then multiple kids, you know, made announcements and I identified as transgender. And what I saw in these narratives, you know, a lot of things that were surprising to me is that the parents described, one, that the kids seemed to get worse, you know, the more that they, you know, announced or took steps, um, they became really very um, somewhat distrustful and hostile of their parents. Um, and then the other thing is that the parents took the kids to the doctors and took the kids to the therapist. And they described that the therapists really weren't interested in hearing anything about the fact that the kid had, had a mental health history or issues or ongoing symptoms or that they were the fifth, sixth or seventh in their friendship group to come out that year or that the, or that the kid had experienced rape recently and that this only came right after. Um, and they described how the clinicians basically said, you know, the only answer is to get on board with transition and otherwise you're transphobic. So these very basic concerns about, is this the right diagnosis? Is this the right path? Is this the right thing to do? Were really brushed off. Um, and it just seemed so odd to me as a physician and as a researcher, why anybody would completely not be interested in a kid's history and what their symptom symptoms were and what their social situation was. So anyway, so those three things. Oh, and there was a fourth thing. I went online and I looked at what the kids were um, sort of posting in social media. I went on to, I did a deep dive into Tumblr. Hmm. Um, and so I saw like a whole new world <laughs> of teenagers giving advice to other teenagers and, and giving them validation for certain things that you shouldn't be validated and kind of giving them, you know, grief about things maybe you shouldn't give grief about. Um, and so I saw a really interesting world there of, um, you know, around this topic where kids were, you know, very, it was very black and white that they were really um, dismissive of kids that weren't trans and very crazy of kids who were. So anyway, so those four things <laughs> is what led me to um, decide to study this and to basically look at this as research. This is a scenario or a situation that doesn't seem to have occurred previously 
let's find out about it. Were there any similarities that you saw between what was happening with this phenomena and other phenomena? Were there anything that you're you're relying on to get a guidance on, like these clusters of individuals of this age group coming together around a certain uh, specific problem, or was this really very unique? Well, so it's it seems to me it sounded a lot like um, the scenario scenarios around um, eating disorders because that's something that's been observed to, um, you know, having friends with eating disorders, it kind of increases the risk and people in groups, um, you know, there have been observations from inpatient and outpatient treatment groups that have had unintended consequences of, you know, instead of resulting in just sort of this improvement, there would be cliques that formed in which, um, those that were the most thin and the most ill were revered as the superstars um, and admired. And then those who weren't as underweight were seen as outsiders. So, um, so yeah, so it did remind me of that, that there's sort of a social aspect to it. You know, the other thing that's been observed in um, sort of inpatient and outpatient eating disorder treatments um, is that sometimes the more experienced um, patients with eating disorders would teach the tricks to the younger ones, things such as using laxatives, things of how you can do things to make your parents think that you actually ate something that day, um, ways to make it appear that you haven't lost weight even though you are. So, um, you know, that really, um, it seemed very parallel to me to the advice on these social media about here's what you should say to your doctor so you could get hormones and here's how nobody else understands you and how your parents are really the enemy. You know, it's just had that kind of a feel to it. And I felt like it would have been irresponsible not to explore that. Was there parallels? Uh, did you use the scientific literature on eating disorder to help guide uh, structuring your research or where did you have to go out on your own limbs. Yeah, so I, you know, so I, you know, I definitely relied on literature around gender dysphoria. There had been a study that had come out of, I think, Finland, where they had described after the first two years of a new treatment center for gender dysphoria, there was a small subset of kids who had significant mental health issues, um, neurodevelopmental issues, and had no um, childhood gender dysphoria. So, th so there was some literature there that informed the research. Um, there was also, yes, the, the research about, um, about eating disorders did, did inform sort of how I created the, uh, the survey for some of it, but most really sort of this big view of like, what is going on? So I had a section of, you know, describing, you know, what was the kid, you know, things about the kid's childhood, things about, you know, the, the child's gender dysphoria symptoms, things about the kid's social scenario, um, their online habits, um, what happened after, what they asked for about the relationship. So really, I wanted just this big, you know, view of what's going on here. And when I started, I didn't know whether there'd be like 10 people or 100 people or... 500 people because when I first started looking there were only like a couple of narratives that I found 
So I didn't know how widespread this scenario might be. And during the, the period of time that I, you know, wrote my survey, started launching recruitment, and then the long period of time it took me to write the study, you know, it just seemed like it was happening more and more. So was there any resistance before you went you published? Because you got some blowback after it came out, but before that, were you just on your own and were there was there any pushback? Yeah. Well, so in the beginning, there really was not, um, you know, because, again, I was taking this as just sort of this very scientific approach to what is happening. I really did not expect this to be as politicized. Um, my previous area of research was abortion. So, you know, that's kind of controversial. So this did not seem like it would be significantly more controversial than that. Um, but during the course of the time that I was I was working on things, um, let's say like I went to a WPF conference and that came across as very, very political, very one sided, at least at least the sessions that I saw. Um, and the first real pushback that I saw was af was when I um, when my the abstract was published. So I presented this um, interim results at a poster uh, at a at a conference, and so I got mixed reviews. Some people were like, "Thank you, I'm seeing this. I'm glad that you're doing this." Other people were like, "Whoa, this is not you know I am really don't you know this is not acceptable." Um, the really, I guess the first documented thing was I think there were some written after the abstract came out. So I think that some folks saw it and were very, you know, you know, very ready to write about how this couldn't possibly be true, couldn't possibly happen before actually the paper was out. So mm -hmm. it was it was fascinating to me because they were talking about the method, you know, so what was what was published was a very short little abstract. And so um, you know, a paper has like pages about what the methodology is and pages of an introduction or whatever. Um, and I thought it was fascinating that people writing these full blogs about the methodology and how this couldn't even, you know, this couldn't happen without having read the paper because the paper didn't exist yet. But they were they were on. They were like ready to go. Um, <laughs> so um, I think that was the first little inkling. But I think I was still. Uh, I don't know if the world was changing or I was naive, but yeah. I was expecting after my paper came out that there'd be some buzz on social media and that was it. <laughs> I didn't think that the buzz would translate academic institutions or, or journals or editors or anything like that. I was I still believe that social media was its discreet little place and then there was real life and then there was like, academic institutions and um, things like that. So what I was surprised about was how seamlessly sort of the um, passionate response that happened on social media immediately went over into the, in, to the journal editors, to the university, to, to like everywhere. Um, so that was really surprising to me. And you, you were more or less censured or people came after you pretty openly and tried to stop you from not only researching this, but they, they went after, did they go after your job and, and other positions that you held that had nothing to do with this particular paper? 
Yeah, so I, I wouldn't say I was censured. Um, I I did have a, a consulting job, and so individuals went to the directors of my consulting job. And, and my consulting job, by the way, had nothing to do with gender dysphoria. So I was I was a physician consultant. I was going out into OBGYN offices and talking about what kind of um, programs we have to help you know pregnant ladies stop smoking or <laughs> or things like that. So it was. It was really unrelated to this, but there are people who wrote a letter saying, you know, we are very upset about this paper. We think it's going to do bad things. We think, you know, we don't like methodology. I mean, I think they misrepresented a lot of what was actually in the paper or what my presentations were. But in any case, they wrote this this letter to the directors saying, um, you know, we demand that you fire her immediately. So, um, so, so what happened then, I think, was, was also surprising, given that this was not, you know, part of my job there. But I was called in to talk about my research and to explain my research and to talk about, you know, my intentions, which are basically to understand what is going on so that, you know, we have a better idea of, of, of this process. Um, so they felt that um, they needed to take a neutral position which that if they fired me immediately, that would be taking the side of the letter writers. But if they rehired me for another year, that would be taking my side. So when my um, hmm. contract came to an end, they chose not to renew it. Um, I have to say that the people that I did work with directly had already submitted all the paperwork to renew my contract for the next year. So I can feel pretty confident that this, decision not to renew was actually, you know, part of this part from the paper. So, hmm. um, so that's, that's about where that went. How do you, how did that you shift know, your thinking about this, this process? You, it seems like you were just kind of going down and investigating something and then all of a sudden you have this huge reaction. How did that shift your, your thinking about this issue? I thought that um, given the response that it was really important to get to the bottom. You know, it just felt like, um, you know, maybe I hit a nerve, but there's this whole experience and there's this whole different, um, you know, development progression experience that um, people were having. You know, why does, why is there a group that, really doesn't want to hear it. You know, I just feel as a scientist, as a responsible person, that despite the noise, you know, I have to sort of go where where the truth is. And just, it felt like there would be more harm to not doing it because I could hear that this was happening. I was hearing from clinicians who were seeing these kids. So some people contacted me after who were clinicians and said, thank you. I'm seeing this in my practice. It doesn't make sense. I don't know what to do. I'm glad that you're doing that. So, um, so really I felt despite all of the noise between that, between hearing from detransitioners who are saying, this was my experience. I wish people had taken time to figure out what was going on with me before rushing me down this track. Um, you know, so so I was getting a lot of different messages, but, you know, the end of the story was 
this is important and this this is worth doing. Um, and I'm just grateful that I can do this. So I, you know, there are, I think there are people who are in this position who might have a relative that's going through this so they can't, you know, be public about it or they're trying to get tenure somewhere and they have to worry about sort of how it's going to, um, you know, be seen or affect that. So I feel like as somebody who, you know, being in the place that I am, um, that it's just, you know, I really don't, you know, I just feel very motivated that this is important information. So I've seen on, well, at least on Twitter that people use your, your first study comes up and then people say that it was debunked. Um, could you explain what happened with that? Was it retracted and then exonerated? Could you explain what happened with the first study? Sure. Well, well, the first thing is, so I, I think there's a lot of people who are using the scientific words not exactly correctly. So for something to be debunked is something that you would need to prove wrong. Um, so that's not what happened. <laughs> um, so what did happen is the paper came out, then there were there, um, I think the journal was bombarded with a lot of um, people talking about it, um, some people complaining about it, some people praising about it. So they felt it was necessary to do a, um, to do a post-publication review, which, you know, it happens. It's not, doesn't happen all the time. So um, I think it's, I think it, well, anyway, so what they, so the paper had already gone through the basic steps of review that, um, you know, couple of, of reviewers had had read it, provided comments, I responded to it, and then an academic editor, you know, read that, you know, kind of gave some more comments, I responded to those, and then it got published. So they did a, a, a very careful, um, you know, more review. So they, they had more people coming on and on and sort of um, giving comments, and then I responded to it. Um, the paper was was available up until the time that the revised paper came out. You know, I think there's there's been a lot of discussion about, um, you know, methodology and things like that. Some people took, um, you know, did not like the methodology that was used, but, um, you know, I didn't invent any of the methods that were used in that paper. These were pretty standard um, methods that are used. And in and fact, the these method, methods... What, yep. what is the method? It's uh, parent reporting. Is that the technical term for it? Could you explain just what the yeah, method was? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. Sure. It, sure. There's, there's, it's, parent, it's collecting the data by parent report. Um, it's a cross-sectional survey. And it is a, you know, anonymous survey. So there are different parts of it. So um, I think what, what's happened is that, um, you know, some folks are playing a little you know, a little fast and loose with the rules in terms of, so scientifically speaking, like the methods, you don't change the rules based on whether or not you like the findings. So the methods that I use, so parent report, this is something that is used quite a lot. And there's like a whole literature of research in which children and adolescents um, health and, you know, physical and mental health is being, is information is obtained through the parents. Um, again, there are strengths and weaknesses to this, as you would imagine, um, but it's not, you know, out of the normal, um, out of the ordinary. And in fact, one of the main um, research papers used to support the social transitioning of young children is a parent report study. So um, 
So yeah, so I felt it was important to kind of link mm. together where the methods that I used are also move, are also used in in the studies that are frequently cited to support social and medical transition. So so parent report is one aspect, and then there's a convenience sample. So um, you know, in studies, there are different kinds of samples you can get. So you can get a clinical sample where if you've got a clinic and you basically um, enroll everybody who's eligible that is seen during a certain period of time, you know, that's one way to do it. Um, a convenient sample is when, you know, you sort of reach out to different areas and you try to you try to find people to take part in the study. So for mine, I reached out to um, websites where I, I had seen um, parents reporting this type of thing. You know, for other types, you know, I know another study that is uh, where they reached out to gender affirming camps and conferences and things like that. So, you know, there's always a risk of um, selection bias in any of this. But again, it's sort of across the board. You can't say this is acceptable here, but it's not acceptable here. Um, Anonymous studies are um, often used because, especially for topics that are stigmatizing, it allows people to be a little bit, allows people to be more honest. Yeah. But a downside is that you can't um, verify the people who are taking it. And so, again, there are a lot of anonymous studies, um, some that support, uh, you know, some that are used in transgender health and, and a lot of different areas. Um, so I do think that um, some of the, I guess, attacks on the methods were a little bit... Um, okay, I'm, for I'm trying me, to look for the right word. Kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so again, and this is, you know, admittedly it's, it's a first descriptive study. So this is not the end all be all last study on this. This is meant, this was meant to be, um, the first description that raises hypotheses and then, you know, will be tested later. So, you know, given where it is, Mm. you know, it's not that dissimilar to other of that type. So, um, you know, so that's, I mean, that's sort of in a nutshell, um, so Sasha, thanks for, uh, like we have three people here. <laughs> so quiet. Um, I'm wondering from your perspective, what did that study, how has that study affected your, your view or your work working with individuals mm-hmm. who would, I guess some of them fit under the ROGD and some not. So mm-hmm. how's that shaped the landscape mm-hmm. from your point of view? Well, I mean, I'd like to start by saying one of the things that really makes this study valuable is that it is very broad. I mean, the the questions in the survey really assess lots of different areas of functioning, um, both long-term, like in early childhood, all the way up until the trans declaration. And so that's really what the power of the study is, is that there really isn't a very narrow hypothesis. Of course, we, we do see this the clustering in friend groups. So that's, that's one um, question that emerges from the study. But that's really what makes the study very helpful, because there are all of these other factors that are taken into consideration, such as giftedness, such as autism, such as trauma, mental health issues. So I know as a clinician, those are themes that I see that end up emerging um, in the the kids who develop dysphoria in adolescence. And I think, first of all, it's it's given both adults and parents and kids uh, another 
conception for what might be going on. Because what would happen oftentimes is, and even with, with the children themselves, there is this one narrative that existed prior to the early 2010s about dysphoria really having been this lifelong experience that would have been very obvious to anybody around. I mean, the nature of dysphoria, insisting that you're the opposite gender and believing you're the opposite gender, it's something you couldn't really hide unless you had this like meta awareness, even as a small child. So a lot of young people that I work with now are able to say, you know, um, I, I've heard kids say, I, I want to make sure I don't have ROGD because when I was young, I didn't really have dysphoria. And so both parents and young dysphoric people hmm. now have another way of trying to understand what is this current experience that's kind of playing out in our family. And for many young kids, there was a narrative put forth by a lot of the affirm affirmative um, clinicians, affirmative YouTubers that say, even if you didn't have dysphoria as a kid, it doesn't mean you're any less trans. And so a lot of young people were kind of digging in their childhood and trying to figure out, you know, was I dysphoric or was I not dysphoric? But, but we now have this ability to say, okay, there might be this other presentation of gender dysphoria that we don't know much about, we don't quite understand yet, and it's not necessarily meant to just completely dismiss whether or not transition is a good idea for somebody, but it does give us another way of looking at what's happening to try and understand, you know, what, what can I use to describe my dysphoria? And so, I mean, for hmm. me, that's, that's really the application of the study. We have more questions now, of course, but this is really, really important because everybody knows this is happening. I talk to young people all the time who are dysphoric, who identify as trans, who say, I see all these younger kids just claiming to be trans out of the blue or becoming dysphoric out of the blue. Hmm. So even young people who maybe believe that they should transition and identify as trans recognize that this phenomenon is happening. So what are some of the next questions that developed out of this uh that first study, um, how does that change the conversation and what are some of the different ways that the conversation's going or the investigation perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I the, the next set of questions is, you know, what types of um, actions, experiences might be related to the start of somebody feeling gender dysphoric, dysphoric and as we are seeing um, people who are detransitioning, you know, what types of factors are associated with resolution of these feelings? Um, so those are a lot of different questions. I mean, we don't know, you know, so a lot of questions because there's a lot that we don't know. We don't know how common this is. We don't know what is the best course of action for, for these, these young people. Um, you know, these are, these are, um, you know, things that need to be explored further. So you say, you know, we don't and, know how many there are, we have no clue. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, so what we do know is that there's been this massive change in, uh, young people presenting to, for care for gender dysphoria. So in the past 10, 15 years, there's been this enormous rise and there's been a change in that there are now a lot of teenagers and that really 
a lot more natal females. It used to be predominantly natal males, and now it's predominantly natal females. Um, what is also very intriguing is that prior to 2012, um, you know, it was understand that natal males could present with gender dysphoria either as young children or as teenagers or middle-aged men. Um, at that point, there was almost nothing in the literature about natal females having an absence of gender dysphoria uh, prior to adolescence. And in some of the literature that, that I've read, it says that when adolescent natal females presented to clinic with their families, you know, there was gender, um, you know, non-conforming behaviors <clears throat> occurring from childhood that was remembered by the child and by the parent. So right now, what, what we're seeing is very different. I mean, we're seeing scenarios where, you know, perhaps a child remembers a history and the parent doesn't, or neither of them remember a history. And so that's very new. And I think we have to ask why, what is this new, you know, presentation? And is it the same as the other ones, you know? Does it is it going to respond the same way to treatment or is this something that's going to be temporary? Because if if the gender dysphoria is going to be temporary, then it puts a whole different, you know, it, it the the weighing the risks and, and benefits is way different if you're expecting the gender dysphoria to be something that lasts six months, a year, or the rest of your life. Um so um so yeah, so I I do feel that the, the research, the first paper just opened up like a lot of questions that can be asked. Are there other studies that you know of other pe other researchers that you're aware of taking up uh, exploring different facets of this alongside you or out there in the open? Well, yeah, there, there are. I mean, so, yeah, I mean, there's 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 been a lot of research about the different typologies of gender dysphoria. Yeah. The um, early onset um, in, in childhood, the late onset for males, you know, and so researchers and clinicians are recognizing this late onset in, in natal females is, is a new thing. Um, I have seen some literature um, sort of describing a more exploratory study with teenagers, especially those that have um, complicated um, mental health histories, sort of a gender exploratory model in which um, sort of the big picture of mental health and these other issues are explored as well as exploring with the, the kid, what does it mean to them? You know, because for sometimes, for, for some of the cases that have been described, um, the gender dysphoria resolves when the mental health issues are addressed. Um, so, so there has been some research, you know, uh, or at least case reports, let's say, around that area. So, yeah. so right now, I think we're in the stage of the next stage around this is sort of case reports getting published where people, uh, clinicians can document sort of what their, their experiences are. Um, I do have a second paper that I'm working on writing up about detransitioners. So mm -hmm. some of these themes come, come up again. Um, and the benefit of having the detransitioner research is that it's first person. These are not parents talking about their children. These are adults, 18 to 60 plus years old, mm -hmm. talking about their own experiences. And so 
many of these things came up, things like a history of sexual assault and being and um, things like mental health issues and trauma um, being the cause of the feelings that made them think they were transgender. Mm-hmm. So these came up. There was also uh, there's also some narratives around people transitioning um, or, you know, uh, identifying as transgender because they had a very difficult time accepting themselves as lesbian or gay. So homophobia, which I think is something that definitely needs to be explored, especially towards um, um, lesbians, um, especially young lesbians, that, that a lot of their, a lot of the feelings of, of feeling wrong, there's something wrong with my body, there's something wrong with me, um, may be related to to this homophobia. So those are things that are, are sort of emerging from the detransition work. Um, you know, there's also sort of the 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 narrative that we that we hear that some people are happier when they transition, and then they detransition because they faced you know discrimination, um, phobia, mm-hmm. all of that, and it's just easier. You know, so you know, or pressure from people in their lives. So there's that narrative as well. So I think what's going to come out of the detransition work is that there are a lot of experiences that may contribute to somebody um, feeling gender dysphoric or identifying as trans or seeking transition. And there are also a lot of reasons why people may detransition, you know, whether it's because their mental health got worse when they transitioned or because it got better, but they had pressure from people in their family or, you know, needing to have a job, for example, um, or a medical problem that made that meant that they needed to stop. So, um, so I think that's where, you know, that'll kind of bring up some more questions. Yeah. Do you have faith in the, uh, in this line of inquiry, uh, kind of, uh, breaking down the, that tight narrative structure that, that you ran against when you published your paper and that all that blowback, do you think that that, do you, do you have faith in the establishment or the process of uh, refining this and making things a little bit more open to, I guess, nuance, for lack of a better word, in this form of care? Um, I think, yeah, I think so. I think it's not a very, you know, I think the audience for these papers, both, you know, the audience in terms of clinicians and researchers and audience in terms of, um, you know, people who are interested, um, there's not just one view there either. It's very, you know, it can be polarized and there are multiple views. So, you know, while there, you know, maybe some pushback, but I think there will also be, you know, in the same way, some support of this narrative, you know, explains X, Y, and Z. So let's just, you know, make sure that it's, that it's out there. So, so I guess I, I guess I do have faith in the system that continuing to research and write papers is, um, the way to go. Is there a way to constellate you two and like, like theory and practice and how, how those two things fit into each other? Would you guys be able to uh, give me some insight in, into how somebody in Lisa's position and somebody's in Sasha's position, um, your work kind of overlaps and feeds into one another? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it, for me as a clinician, I tried to use this approach of being radically open to seeing what the case studies will say. So when I'm working with clients, I try really hard not to have a hypothesis in my mind. Now, as a clinician, part of your job is to kind of, you know, figure out what's going on with people. 
but I try to stay really open. So for example, I've talked sometimes in my videos about how when I started this work, I wasn't really sure what I was going to find. And now that I'm working with this population, a lot of new insights have come about. So for example, there seems to be a link between eating disorder and gender dysphoria. This is not something I had any idea about when I started doing this work about five years ago. So for example, that might be an area of inquiry that would be good for researchers to pick up because it seems to be part of this phenomenon. And that's why it is important, whether you're a researcher or a clinician, to just stay open and allow your clinical work or your, your surveys and your data to actually lead your area of inquiry. So that is an example of how as a clinician, I might say, you know, Lisa, like this is something I'm noticing in a lot of the kids that I work with or a lot of consultations I'm doing. Um, what have you found? And then that might be a question that researchers can pick up and, and ask more about. Yeah, I definitely think the communication between clinician and researcher, and there are people who do both, um, is really important because then when, you know, when Sasha raises, raises issues and talks about what she's seeing, then that may change the way that I might ask a question in the next survey. You know, all of the time, I feel like, you know, I'm learning all of the time from listening to clinicians and what they're hearing and, you know, and what they're experiencing in their practices. Um, and also <clears throat> when people reach out to me. And so that informs the, you know, some questions that I might ask, you know, in the study. And are there forums where uh, people in your two kind of areas get to meet and mingle and overlap, or is it just uh, emerging and you just find the literature and then you reach out to one another individually? Um, well, I mean, it seems like a, a lot of clinicians are kind of finding ways to connect with each other. Um, I know Lisa and I, of course, have been in contact and kind of working together for some time. Um, because this is kind of a, a controversial area, though, it has become a little bit challenging to have good faith inquiry and just posing questions because it seems like in certain, uh, whether it's online communities or even maybe in some professional organizations, if you do not adhere to a very narrow perspective on these topics, it can be very hard to find just kind of like honest camaraderie or um, inquiry and, and things like that. So sometimes it's challenging, but I think for those of us who really with good faith just want to understand what's going on without necessarily uh, a very hard stance on, on things either way, I think we end up finding each other and working together. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> and so uh, what? Where where are we going now or what, what's the game field going forward? I think I already asked that, but so we're, we're looking into more instances of detransition. We're uh, looking into various different methods of questioning um, or, or providing questions for the gender dysphoric youth to, you know, map out their own lives. Um, is there any big uh, thing on the horizon that's going to uh, open up that you guys feel? is out there or it's just a slow process. I, yeah, I think it's more of a slow process. I don't I don't see any big, you know, 
conclusive study. I think it's mm-hmm. going to be as people, so as individuals who have detransitioned are more vocal and talk about their experiences, I think that's going to be one um, way that that there's going to be more nuance to the discussion. Um, I think as clinicians are starting to find each other um, who are, you know, who are interested in sort of this big picture of there may be many ways, not just one narrative of, you know, a person, you know, seeks transition, gets transition, life is better. Um, you know, the clinicians who are like, oh, I'm seeing a lot of different kinds of patients come in with the, a kind of sort of a range of issues and a range of outcomes. So I think as they start talking about, um, about their experiences, I think there's going to be added more nuance and then sort of the research. And I don't think it's going to be a painless process. Um, I do think that because people are very passionate about this, um, you know, with good reason. I mean, there are um, people who feel that the interjection of new narratives might um, disqualify their own experiences. There are parents who are worried that their children are going to be treated and then be harmed by that treatment. And there are other parents who feel that their kids are going to be helped by treatment and then not be able to get treatment. I mean, it's going to be a very passionate Hmm. um, uh, process, but I do think it's, you know, a little bit at a time and sort of this um, really a methodical way of, you know, exploring and then, you know, taking in more information and then exploring again. Um, You know, that's, that's Hmm. my, that's my thought. I think I, I can, sh- you know, on the clinical side, share that um, for me, it's really interesting to find that the more people, the more young people are identifying as trans, the less value the trans identity seems to have for some kids. So um, a lot of times when you look at conditions that have spread through social contagion, like at the historical, uh, the historical documentation of these types of things. When a diagnosis loses its potency to communicate something important, that's when it starts to kind of fizzle out. So it's interesting to see, at least in my caseload, some kids will say things like, you know, when a lot of other people are identifying as trans, it makes me angry because it doesn't like mean anything that I am trans. Hmm. So from the clinical perspective, I don't know how all of that is going to unfold, but there is something really interesting when you notice this humongous spike, uh, the, the, the meaning behind what it is to be trans or to have gender dysphoria inevitably changes because now it's much, much more common and it encompasses a broader range of types of people who have it. So that's something interesting, too. So I'm really curious about what that is going to mean. And I don't know if that's something that we necessarily um, can study with research, but but it's something that is unfolding. And I I'm really interested in it. it one thing that I've noticed is that it, it at least just with that one stat, that the, this massive increase in, in females um, seeking uh, gender therapy <clears throat> What what is this um, broadly speaking? Because you're both well, I, sorry to accuse you of being women, but you're both uh, women, <laughs> and and Lisa, your your work has been around uh, the female reproductive uh, system and 
delivering all those babies. What yeah. what are some of the things that this is? Uh, you 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 see that this might um, help us to understand female health and female psychology and female sexuality better. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's true now as it's been true for a long time. Is it's very difficult to be an adolescent female. There are, I think, so many right now. There are just so many um, factors. There are so many influences going on. Um, so I do think that. Um, you know, for some, this could be a response to all of those stressors. Um, you know, the literature shows that that social influence does happen more with females. Um, and I, I see that not as a weakness of females. I see that as a strength. Actually, the, the being connected to other people, I think, is a strength. And you know, just in taking sort of the long view, to me, it sort of seems like the glue to society, you know, is how, you know, women make friendships with other women and, and have these friendships. Uh, you know, I just really think that's a very valuable, important part of of being human and having a society. So I don't see that as a weakness. I see that sort of empathy and interaction as as a strength. Um, you know, that said, and again, it's not completely women, you know, there are, there are, there are males who are very empathetic and, um, you know, and there are women who are not. Um, but, you know, I do think that that's one piece of the puzzle. Um, you know, I think, hmm. gosh, there's, there's so many things I think that, um, I think with the female body, there's, you know, there are things that are great and there are things that are really not great. And so, you know, I completely empathize with, um, you know, the desire or need to either avoid or escape some things. Um, yeah. So, I mean, so it's complicated. I mean, my background is in OBGYN is, was very sex-based. I mean, my patients were female and, you know, the, uh, the process it was were things about preventing unintended pregnancy or helping people get pregnant or you know managing a you know helping to manage a pregnancy and deliver baby it's you know it doesn't get more sex based than that <laughs> i think um so so yeah so i think coming with that perspective it just you know um it's a little you know i think it's a little bit unique but i you know i definitely feel this you know this understanding of why this would hit females quite a lot and you know also males i think there are i think there are a lot of reasons that people i think this is um i mean i i think maybe sasha has said this and maybe lisa marciano um i do think this is a different way to express distress um which didn't exist um you know 10 15 years ago um and when people are in distress, they're looking for ways to feel better. Like there's, you know, that's human nature. And so this is a narrative that I think may be comforting to some people, especially as um, the other options may be scarier to them. I don't, you know, um, you know, whether someone is really does not want to be female because they experienced a rape and that, you know, no, thank you. This is like, you know, there is nothing female that, you know, that somebody would, you know, I could see in the, in the traumatic 
sitting in a traumatic place, one would want to really distance themselves with anything female, mm-hmm. um, you know, for, you know, males and females who might be experiencing some, um, you know, other kinds of trauma or um, very scary mental health issues. I mean, the young adulthood is when is when some of the, the more severe um, psychiatric illnesses sometimes take hold. Um, and those can be very, very scary. And so this might be an explanation for that. Um, yeah, I think there's just a lot of different narratives. And then, you know, also the escape of not wanting to be lesbian, which mm-hmm. is, you know, you know, I feel like, you know, we've grown so much in terms of tolerance as a society, but, um, you know, there's mm-hmm. definitely, there seems to be a pecking order in certain groups and which, you know, uh, you know, lesbians are just, you know, seeing a lot of negativity they're coming their way. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I just think the world is much more complicated than there's one answer for everybody. And I think mm-hmm. this is something that, you know, you want to come to the right answers for the right person, mm-hmm. you know? So, yeah. Lisa, something you said is really ringing a bell with me because you talked about just all of the reasons that a female person may want to escape their femaleness. And a trait that I see is really common in both males and females that have ROGD is a high level of sensitivity to the outside world. So a really strong sense of what other people around me expect or what other people Mm. want me to be. And a lot of highly perfectionistic kids And so there's something about that too, right? Like you said, this is not a a weakness of women, it's a strength. Well, this sensitivity to the world around you is very, very powerful. And if you haven't yet developed a really strong sense of yourself, if you have not been able to um, just cope with the fact that you might disappoint people sometimes in just pursuing your own truth or what feels authentic for you, it can be very easy to be swayed and you might turn against yourself or you might really play the role that everyone around wants you to play. So like this is a very common thing I hear kids who don't want to disappoint anyone in their life ever. And it's interesting because there is this narrative sometimes on the far right that trans identified kids are just doing it to be special. But I, I actually find it to be quite the opposite. A lot of them are trying to run away from themselves and hide, you know, behind a different mm. persona. So that sensitivity, I think, plays a really big role there. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think that it's, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you might um, be worried about, you know, um, the, the thoughts and opinions of people in your circle. But now with social media, your circle is like thousands and thousands of people that yeah people sort of spend a lot of time on. So there are so many more ways to be worried about disappointing. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. And finding yeah. alternative forms of comfort. Yeah. I mean, cause part of adolescence is really trying to figure yourself out and figuring out who you are. I mean, and that's just like normal, you know, healthy development. Um, and so I think this is, you know, you know, I, I don't know. I see this as a little bit of a perfect storm that there's, there's just a lot going on society. There's a lot of, um, so there's a lot of stress in society. There is a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot going on on, um, social media. There's just, 
Um, you know, this is the age where kids generally are, are sort of stepping out and trying to learn about themselves. Um, you know, and for some, some of them, this might be the right direction, but I think for some of them, this might not be the right direction and might actually derail them from, mm -hmm. you know, where they're ultimately hoping to be. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So. Hmm. What I wish we had more space for was, can we can contain that type of exploration in more of a symbolic way? Like that's really what's missing because even if, somebody feels like exploring mm. a trans identity is something that's valuable for them at the time. Why isn't there space for that without having to abandon your old self and throw away all of your childhood memories and photo albums? Like there, there's this complete shedding that I see a lot of times of the old version of yourself rather than um, creating a space where maybe this is like a part of your path that you're going to walk down to learn something new about yourself or tap into like a more confident version of yourself, but it doesn't have to be marked with such uh, an alienation from your old self. Now, some of that is pretty typical in adolescence, you know, but the fact that this is often coupled with medical intervention, which of course concretizes it and makes it permanent that's really the part to me that's very troubling because what we know about adolescence, like you said, Lisa, is this is a part of a healthy development sometimes to explore different versions of identity or question, you know, who you are and what group you fit into. Um, but then kind of putting that in, in a medical intervention seems really premature. Yeah, Lisa, what are your thoughts about the medicalization of this issue? And do you see that there needs to be some activism with regards to the medical establishment to change some of the ways it's been uh, overcompensating in the direction of affirmation? I think, yeah, I mean, I think part of the problem is that there has been activism in medicine. I think, um, you know, many organizations, you know, the professional organizations, tend to be very focused on evidence-based and things like that. And I think there are a lot of um, disconnects in terms of, you know, the research and the certainty that people are saying that affirmation and medical treatment um, is the only answer. Um, so, um, yeah, so I think that's been, you know, a little bit surprising to me that it's been really framed as this is the kind, this is the positive way. I think there's, there's been some maybe overreach in terms of, you know, claiming some of these treatments as evidence-based. So, for example, um, if you look at the Endocrine Society guidelines, the most recent ones, um, they grade how strong the evidence is for each of their um, recommendations. And so for the treatment of adolescents with puberty blockers, with, with hormones, um, the grade of evidence is poor and very poor. So, um, you know, and I think that's an honest, open way to discuss it because it's very hard to do, a, you know, you really couldn't do a randomized trial of this topic, but there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot of loss to follow up in these studies or the study or the study populations are just very narrow that may not be generalizable. Um, so given that the evidence to support medical treatment for adolescents is low quality and very low quality evidence, you know, to have 
organizations come around and saying, well, this is evidence-based. I feel like that's a little bit disingenuous or maybe there's like, there's a disconnect somewhere. Um, so again, you know, I'm, I'm an optimist. I do think this is going to balance out as sort of the discussions become more broad and more nuanced. Um, but I do think uh, confirmation bias is a, is a real problem in that, you know, you know, as human beings, we all want to, you know, be confirmed in the research that we see. So, you know, seeking out research that actually um, is consistent with what, you know, the findings that we want to be true. And I think that's been going on for some time here. So I mm -hmm. think as, you know, again, more comes out, but, but yeah, so I think it's, I think that's one of the ways that things have been medicalized a little bit, um, I think faster than they, they really should have been. Mm -hmm. I think this also really highlights for us how little we know about gender dysphoria as a condition. First of all, we've seen that it can increase in astronomical numbers. So that's something. And we've seen that the medical treatment that has been the standard for decades does not help many, many people as we see with detransitioners. So this also is forcing us as a medical industry, as a mental health community to stop and say, okay, maybe we need to try and understand this in a way that is not purely medical, because there are a lot of psychological aspects of this that for some reason, based on like the Harry Benjamin method, have just kind of been discarded without really giving it a shot. Um, at, at trying to help people in a compassionate way, in a way that isn't, you know, homophobic or isn't going to demonize like a cross sex um, kind of exploration or identity. I mean, there are so many hmm. ways that we have not asked questions about gender dysphoria and not tried to support people who have it, that I think this huge, massive kind of like exodus of detransitioners is going to force us to ask those types of questions and to me as a clinician, that is what I find really interesting about my work because I've seen how a, a slow, compassionate, and careful approach does help a lot of people resolve their dysphoria in other ways. Mm -hmm. Are there incentives to not get it wrong or are those incentives missing when activism comes into the medical field? By which I mean, how do you correct the narrative? How do you correct, how does, how do these communities correct their overreach? And is it periodic that, that these industries will just get swept up in these different directions and then have to steer the ship in a different direction? You know, I think one of the things that's going to be helpful is, you know, having these different perspectives being published um, so what I've heard is that there are many clinicians who facilitate transition who say, oh, I don't have none of my patients detransition. I don't know. You know, like I've never seen anybody detransition. Um, on the other hand, what we hear from detransitioners is they don't want to go back to the physicians that facilitated their transitions. So, you know, I think, you know, that disconnect, I think, is kind of keeps us in our separate silos. And so there is more discussion of this, you know, it might be, it might um, sort of inspire maybe better follow-up in terms of clinicians, you know, maybe thinking about their loss to follow-up patients, not as all, you know, having moved and are doing great and found another provider, but sort of thinking, well, maybe this didn't work for everybody. Hmm. And 
perhaps, this is my hope, that maybe on the front end, with sort of this broader understanding, um, they might say, transition, saying, I want to know, you know, however this turns out for you. So, you know, um, so if this doesn't work out for you, please let me know, because that will help me understand this process better. And then I can, can incorporate that for the next patient I see. And I wonder if detransitioners aren't getting that message, that they get a, a message that, you know, that hmm. maybe the clinicians don't want to hear from them. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that sort of, um, you know, conversation, I think, may inform the process. I can see clinicians having prodded or facilitated somebody going down a permanent medical path who then doesn't enjoy ending up there. I can see why clinicians wouldn't want to see those cases or why it would uh, kind of uh, be a nick on their own egos. Yeah. But, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure clinicians always put their ego aside whenever they're doing their work. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. So, yeah, no, I, and I think it's, you know, it just, I guess the pushback is so surprising to me, the pushback against hearing about detransitioners. I mean, yeah, uh, it takes so much bravery for them to like even talk about it because they are, you know, on social media, they, they get a lot of, a lot of grief pointed their way. But if you think about it, so like back from sort of the medical model, like if you're working on any kind of intervention why wouldn't you want to know about all of the outcomes? You know, it would be like, you know, in my mind, I always go back to OBGYN stuff. Like, let's say there's a new technique for cesarean section. You know, you wouldn't say, I only want to hear back, you know, this works great for everybody. I only want to hear about the good outcomes. You know, no, you need to know about all of the outcomes because then that informs, you know, you know, how you go forward, you know, and if you're only hearing from, you know, let's say 25% have good outcomes, you know, that's a different story. 75% have good outcomes. Yeah. Who knows? But if you don't know the whole story, then how can you really have confidence in your intervention? It might be assuming that you, either of you have an encyclopedic knowledge of medical history, but is there, <laughs> is this, is there a precedent for the medical establishment not wanting or uh, having pushback when they explore um, these different uh, questions? Well, I mean, I think there is a, a long history of uh, clinicians getting and, and patients getting very excited about an intervention and then going really forward quickly before the, the full, you know, benefits and risks are known and then have it be sort of tempered back. Um, so if you think about, um, you know, when I was a resident, we were in OBGYN. The literature at that time, the recommendations were any postmenopausal woman was offered hormone replacement therapy because this was viewed as um, preventive. This was going to, you know, not only prevent osteoporosis, but prevent heart disease and things like that. My first couple of years in practice, more research came out that showed some negative outcomes. And then the whole you know, specialty changed, you know, basically said, oh, no, we need to view this as sort of a medication, not a vitamin. This is, there are risks, mm-hmm. there are benefits there. We have to sort of tailor it. Um, 
but but yeah, but I think if there are and and that's an example of when when it kind of goes well because I think it was a very short amount of time where you know things change rapidly. But if you think about the opioid crisis, you know, so years ago, you know, opioids, you know, they're great for short-term pain relief, you know, for surgery, for for all these things. Um, used very very commonly, you know, is there is there a risk for you know? for dependence, for, for abuse. And it's like, I think there was a little bit of a delay where before people were willing to sort of consider that. And I think that got further and further um, along before we were able to pull it back, you know, and right now there's a different, I mean, at some point there was like this discussion of, you know, should we be asking everybody about pain levels and things like that? Um, so, so yes, I think there has been sort of this back and forth that happens um, I think in this case, I mean, I think there are the same things that happen, you know, with all of these, but I do think that sort of the, maybe the activist arm has made it and the framing has made it harder for us to really comprehend that there are risks also, and that we need to temper about and think about, you know, is this the right treatment for the right person and, and things like that. Um, so I think where, you know, with, postmenopausal hormone replacement where the turnaround was kind of quick for opioid use, or even let's say over, you know, over prescription of antibiotics, you know, something along those lines, mm. you know, maybe a little bit longer, but I think that this pushback and sort of this single-minded, single-minded approach um, is going to just make it, it's going to take longer before we get back to that place where we can, you know, Look at look at the patient more holistically. Think, look at the treatments more holistically, um, and to to individualize that way. So, Lisa, you're so. lifting up the tendency of the medical establishment to sometimes latch on to what what is seen as like a miracle cure at the time, like usually this new kind of development. But I think another layer that makes this even um, more complicated is that there's this kind of dual perspective that is placed on a gender dysphoric child. So on one hand, the activists have really tried to frame transgender children as a similar thing to being gay, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we often see, at least I can say as a, as a therapist in all of these workshops and I mean, continuing education classes, it's often LGBTQ, LGBTQ, as though all of those are just another version of some kind of sexuality that someone just has and we have to support. So, you know, the there's a, a woman named Corinna Khan, trans woman, who's talked about these issues. And I, I just pulled up her tweet. She said, if you believe there are trans kids, you'll seek different solutions than if you believe there are children who suffer from gender dysphoria. And that is, I think, in a nutshell, that is one of the most powerful concepts that people have to understand. That's why clinicians and doctors are very hesitant to say, you know, is this treatment effective? Because even asking the question implies that there's something wrong with this transgender child. But if we can kind of pull back and ask about this thing that this child is suffering with, it's very different than just kind of rubber stamping that this is a transgender child and this is a life-saving intervention. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100% because I do think um, you know, it's premature to call a, a child transgender. We have, you know, what the literature shows is that most of the, the children who feel gender dysphoric as children 
when they get through adolescence and often will figure themselves out and go through certain, you know, pubertal milestones, will identify not as transgender, but often as gay or lesbian. So, you know, gender dys dysphoria might be sort of a, you know, going to be gay or lesbian or bi. Um, and there's really no way to tell in real time, you know, during childhood or until you don't know the trajectory of the child. Mm -hmm. So to, to basically place the label of trans on them, it's, you know, it just means it, I feel like it, it sort of adds this solidity and this certainty when we don't know, um, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's probably part of it because of course I, you know, I do think that, um, you know, viewing this as, you know, there have been a lot of terrible things done, you know, to gay, lesbian, bi people and to trans people. And I think maybe this understanding, it's like, oh, well, we don't want to do that again. Um, clearly, nobody wants to do that again. But we have to basically make sure that we're not pushing a child in a certain direction when that's mm -hmm. not the direction where they would have gone mm -hmm. just because this is how it, you know, might have been explained politically. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I do appreciate sort of that caution of, you know, we don't know yet and maybe we shouldn't be, you know, viewing medical treatment as the only way to go at, at an early, you know, when we think about young children. I, I Not wonder, that they're getting medical treatment, but, mm, you know, but as that's going to be their course. Yeah, and I wonder, too, if part of the reason that society at large has been so quick to adopt this narrative of the transgender child maybe also has to do with um, just wanting to sanitize and um, wrap up this gender dysphoria in a way that feels palatable and positive, like an identity. Because if you think about the nature of what gender dysphoria really means, it's a person who feels such an excruciating disconnect from their own body that they want to change it, even very young. And if we mm -hmm. were to just stop and think about how distressing that probably feels, that's not pleasant. I don't think anyone wants to sit with that. So instead, we've yeah. repackaged it like, oh, it's a trans kid. Yay. And there's all of these really positive media stories about it. And I imagine that for adults in, in, in these communities, the medical community, mental health community, that probably feels a lot more positive and a lot less distressing to really sit there and think about what is the suffering of gender dysphoria? And I know a lot of activists say, no, it's only because of discrimination that people suffer. But that's that's disingenuous, too, because by definition, gender dysphoria is a disconnect with your own reality. So that is painful. So I'm, I'm just curious about that on like a broader level. Are we all just having a hard time really grappling with the fact that, oh, we're seeing massive numbers of young people who really start to hate their bodies. That's very hard to sit with. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and how do you expect a, a medical industry or, or a medical community or medical culture who can't exhibit caution, humility, and patience to teach those attributes to the kid who might benefit from being cautious, uh, humble, and, and patient with their own suffering, with their own development, and with their own lives? So, yeah, yeah, it's very hard. 
Lisa, did you have yeah, a thought? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was, that was a really big question. And I don't know if we can basically, mm. you know, paint the whole medical establishment yeah. that way. Um, I, I, you know, Thank I think, you. I think, again, a little, we need a little bit more, more nuance, but I think we can recognize that a lot of, a lot of what's driving this is the desire to relieve suffering, you know, and, you know, so maybe let's, maybe we shouldn't be have so much animosity towards, you know, each other in each position, mm. because as parents, if your child is suffering, you want to do what's going to help them. And so there's a lot, you know, sort of then the second bit is, um, is this going to help them in the long term? Is this going to help them in the short term? Like what to do? And I think also from, from, you know, physicians and psychologists and, and clinicians, again, there, I think there's also this desire to relieve suffering. And it's really the difference of perspective is not whether you want to hurt someone or whether you don't want to relieve their suffering. I think all of the players are really thinking and are, are driven by how do we relieve suffering? Mm -hmm. um, you know, and just are coming at that point with different perspectives and different insights based on, you know, what literature they've read, what literature, you know, they haven't read, who they've talked to, how they've trained, who's who their patients are and which patients come back. I mean, I think that's sort of the global problem. And that um, and again, this simplifying it into a this is who they are. This is how you fix it, I think, is what has led us down this really fast path to to move in one direction, because who wouldn't want to fix it? And it's only when you know, parents and doctors are saying, wait a second, this is not fixing it for some of these kids, mm -hmm. you know, then I think that's where it, where, where it changes. It's so difficult to, so again, it, it's a moral question. It, it's, uh, if, if somebody comes up and says, I can fix suffering, then if you say, I'm going to resist your fix, like the, there's a moral, are are you being unethical by resisting? Are you being unethical by being critical of that? And it, you know, like you can be painted as, you can be painted as the bad guy. If you're saying, wait, hold on, let's slow down because you are uh, right. de facto blocking people from uh, ending their suffering or uh, finding a cure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it all, it depends on the framing, you know, I, I, you know, um, you know, who, who has perfect knowledge? You know, nobody has perfect knowledge at this point. So, um, you know, maybe we take a step back from sort of demonizing um, and sort of, um, but I, yeah, I see that you can be painted into a corner. Like, why wouldn't you want to relieve suffering now? But if you think that that's going to make things worse in the long run, I mean, I think that's the way the conversation needs to go. Like we are talking about, short term, we're talking about long term, and we're talking about, you know, who this works for, who this might not work for, how do we figure that out? Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's so, it's become so contentious. Yeah. For me, I'm, I'm also curious then about what is our relationship with suffering? You know, if you look at how do we conceptualize disease? I mean, I'm not a physician, right? But, but how do we conceptualize disease? What is the role of a physician? Um, what is psychological suffering? And what is the role of the therapist? And so um, that, that also is a, a set of questions that 
we all answer differently, you know? So my perspective as a therapist personally is not that my job is to help a person examine their life and find all the points of suffering and just systematically eradicate them and by whatever means necessary. My job is, mm. especially in adolescence, right, which is our time full of suffering through the history of you know humanity, <laughs> my role is to try and help the person look at the type of suffering they're experiencing and asking, what is this about? What is this suffering? Why is this suffering happening? Is this something uh, that I'm going to learn from? Is this something that is asking me to do something with my life or with my priorities or how I spend my time or how I relate to myself? So that's kind of an interesting question, too, because I think you're right, Lisa, in that all of these different perspectives are about alleviating suffering and may also be about what is the nature of human suffering and what are we supposed to do with that suffering? And, and how, how do you put that question into uh, the form that a pill can answer it or, yeah. or a scalpel? And, and when, yeah. when, and I mean, if you can answer that, then you can say when not to use the pill, when not to use the scalpel. Yeah. I mean, and there are, you know, the thing is there are some, there are some issues that are, you know, easily solved and resolved and some that aren't, mm -hmm. and there's some that you kind of don't know. So, um, so again, it's not coming out of nowhere, this, yeah. you know, this desire for a quick fix because some, some problems are pretty straightforward, but, um, but I think, you know, the key is knowing when it's not. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you brought up, Sasha brought up our relationship or conceptual relationship with suffering. And I was thinking at the same time, what's our conceptual relationship with ignorance? How do we, you know, remind ourselves that there's so much that we don't know and how do we uh, establish a culture where it's always progressing, but it holds space open to, we don't know things and we need to, we need to think more. We need to ask more questions and, and, you know, almost hold that as, as a sacred, uh, you know, kind of cornerstone of how progress happens is not through answers, but through questions more and facilitating that curiosity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that kind of speaks to what you mentioned earlier, Lisa, which is that it may be premature to say that we, we have these evidence-based treatments for gender dysphoria when really we don't have great evidence at least not applicable to this current population, maybe not so much in the long run. So I think at least that would be an area that would be valuable for humility. And on the other hand, I mean, if I were to put myself in the shoes of a parent, let's say, or um, somebody who is treating a, a dysphoric child who has really um, come to believe that this is a life or death situation, that this child might be very... Um, suicidal if they don't get some kind of treatment. I can also understand why people say, you know what, you're right, we don't have all the long-term data for this, but this is the best thing we have right now. And I can really empathize with that perspective too, because if you have a child who's suffering and you have this hope that this treatment really might make a big difference, at least can stave off the suicidality for now, of course I understand why that's yeah. powerful. And what we're also seeing is that for some people, this treatment increases their suicidality. So it's really hard to know exactly what way to go. Lisa, do you have any tips for people who um, 
find that the questions they're asking are getting them into trouble? Um, can you rephrase that? Yeah. Um, how do you be, what is this, uh, what is this, uh, kind of this topic or this adventure or this, this line of question taught you about, um, adversity and courage and, uh, and, and checking yourself and, and, and continuing down the path. Okay. I mean, I think it's, it's always important to kind of keep in your mind that, you know, there could be different outcomes in terms of the research. You know, I feel like, you know, I'm exploring, but I may, the, if the research shows that, you know, that I'm wrong about X or Y, I feel like, okay, I can understand that. Or if it shows that I'm right, I can understand that. But not to be so insistent on one narrative, you know, that's one thing. Um, in terms of sort of responding to pushback from, you know, from asking the questions, um, you know, I think it's important to keep a little bit of distance between um, what people are saying who don't know you or don't know your work or things like that. So, you know, I have my my inner circle of people who who I love and who love me back and people who know me and maybe people who don't like me so much, who knows. But, you know, I've got my inner circle of people who know me um, that I interact with. And then there's like another, you know, sort of another layer of people who, you know, might know me. But then there was like this whole array of people who don't know me at all, but were able to con conclude that I am awful. I'm terrible, the worst person ever. Or I'm the best person, the, you know, hero and whatever. And so kind of keeping a distance uh, from sort of the, um, I guess, the, the, the decisions made without sort of input, you know, and taking that with a grain of salt, you know. Um, so, I mean, so that's kind of how I, you know, how I dealt with that. I mean, I, I you know, it's sometimes, you know, you have to keep a little bit of a sense of humor, um, you know, that a lot of the people who write and talk about my paper, I'm pretty sure never read it, you know. Um, and it's, you know... <laughs> So it's kind of hard to take that as sort of seriously. I mean, there was one comment that this, you know, when things were really stressful, that really kind of made me laugh, that somebody said something like, oh, it's parent reports, like something like that should be in the title. Well, in the original title, it was there. It was just at the end. It was after a colon. So <laughs> apparently somebody basically didn't even read to the end of the title to basically you know, decide they knew they knew everything and to make a comment about it. So, um, you know, talk about attention spans being really yeah. short. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, so again, taking sort of everything with a grain of salt and just kind of, you know, uh, constantly checking and just, you know, checking the integrity and making sure that, you know, hmm. you know, I can I can go forward. So. I don't know if that was what you were asking. I, I just, uh, we started with research and we're ending with value. So I just wanted to get a piece of you. Like, yeah. How do you tell the story of yourself to yourself and how do you go through, uh, what you're going through and how do you, how do you confront that and put it in its place so that you yeah. can keep on going. Through? I mean, I feel I was sort of lucky to be at the right place at the right time. 
you know? So I have my experience as, as a doctor and a researcher, and then I noticed something and then set out to explore it. And when I saw that something, you know, I was somebody who had research skills. Um, so I feel like I was fortunate in that way. And then fortunate again that I could, you know, speak about this topic because, you know, I don't have the same kind of obstacles that someone with a kid going through this would have or somebody who is in a job position like seeking tenure. So again, I felt fortunate that I could say things that and explore this area when other people can't. So that's how I see it. It's just that I feel fortunate to be at the right place at the right time. And, um, you know, just looking, looking for looking for the truth, looking for, you know, what's going on and how to explain it and how and how to help people, you know, because I, I really think the folks that are detransitioners, I mean, like, they absolutely deserve to be helped. There is no question that they had an experience that was not, you know, well documented. So this is about really learning more and hmm and just kind of sharing what I learned. So I guess. Infinite education. (laughs) It's been very educational thus far. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, no, but I see this as like, I'm always learning. And I think we're all always learning and just being open to um, just keeping, keeping your eyes open to, to what might happen. Do you have any final thoughts, Sasha? I just love what Lisa said. I mean, I think that's so wise to take things with a grain of salt. Um, I've also kind of had my fair share of either hyper praise or hyper demonization. And it's really true. You cannot get too attached to either of those because that will cloud your ability to stay open to what's coming your way, what you're learning through your work. And so you really have to kind of find this grounded place in the middle where you just let your your work or whatever you're experiencing um, bring up questions for you and help you figure out like what to ask next. So I, I just really love that. Thanks, Sasha. <laughs> Thank you both um, professional women um, for joining me on this conversation. Benjamin. What? Thanks. Thanks, Benjamin. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna I really the... enjoyed your your interviews. Oh uh, yeah, thank you. yeah. No, it, it's been a it, truly it's been an honor to speak with both of you, and and thanks for coming on, Lisa. It's been great to hear your story, to hear you tell your story. Oh. And thanks, thanks. I appreciate it. I know the mysterious Lisa Littman in the flesh. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I've been so hesitant to do these kind of things. I was. <laughs> Like keeping a low profile, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, that's a, but um, a, but I was reassured. I've seen your other interviews. I I know Sasha. I mean, it's you know, I think the time was right. Right place, right time. All three of us. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, we had nowhere else to be. We're not allowed to go anywhere. So here we are. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Congratulations for reaching the end of the podcast. If you enjoyed this product, consider donating to this channel via PayPal.me slash Benjamin Boyce or joining me on Patreon. Also follow me on Twitter at Benjamin A. Boyce. Have a good night.